Welcome to Profiles. Welcome to Profiles. A monthly podcast featuring industry disruptors. Tune in to hear the stories of people who weren't afraid to dream big, take chances, and shake things up. Hello and welcome to Promo Corner's podcast, Profiles, where we'll be talking with industry disruptors to get their take on the world of promotional products and how they're shaking things up. I'm your host, Steve Woodburn, and we appreciate your taking time out of your busy day to schedule time with us. Back when drinkware wasn't quite so popular, a supplier named Alabaster Industries made a coffee cup that, well, it looked like a giant triangle with a funnel on top. It was called the Admiral's Mug, and the father of our guest today helped create it, but Alabaster didn't patent the design. Within just a few months of its debut, a major drinkware company knocked it off and sold literally millions of them in the retail world. I ask our guest what it was like to have a father in the business. Well, those were the days when we used to make things in America, right? So uh, he ran you know, an injection molding company that was selling a lot of I would say half retail with 90% of that business going into Walmart and Kmart at the time. A little bit of, you know, Winn-Dixie Kroger. Uh, but then half of it was the ad spec side of it. So, yeah, you know, it's a lot of saying, right? It, the differences were shows were in Dallas. Uh, they weren't in Vegas. Yeah, but I think it was a more simple time where a $9 million supplier in Alabama made you a, a bigger player than a $9 million supplier today, obviously. But maybe the biggest difference was is a $9 million supplier in 1988 employed 400 people, right? Um, that, that's probably not the case anywhere anymore. So um, it was interesting, though, like growing up around the business, I didn't understand as much about it from the promo side of it. It's more of just the plastic ejection molding making goods, storing them in inventory versus today's model, which is buy stuff from China, uh, buy stuff from you name it, third world country and bring it in, store it and decorate it and ship it. So, um, you know, I think I would say times were a little more simple then, but maybe they weren't if you actually had to manufacture stuff. Our guest today is John Norris, Chief Operating Officer of Starline, a top supplier in our industry based in Buffalo, New York. All the way through college, he had no desire to join this industry and focused instead on his passion, engineering. So my background is engineering, uh, engineering, mathematics, kind of what I went to school for. Um, I'm not sure what I wanted to be. So I initially wanted to go to West Point, be in the military. Um, actually turned down a four-year scholarship uh, for you know all of that. And I guess it was probably the right choice because... The year after I turned uh, down a four-year scholarship to that, 9/11 happened. So probably would have been a different, a different world um, that I would have grown into. But um, you know, a lot of that, you know, military engineering side kind of just led me into, you know, ultimately becoming an industrial engineer. So a lot of process control, a lot of efficiency, um, you know. Queuing, automation, anything really around systems and processes and process improvement was my kind of passion. He spent his first 17 years in Birmingham, Alabama, where Alabaster Industries was located, before moving to Buffalo, New York with his family. Alabaster had closed down and Starline bought pieces of the company, which is how John became familiar with them. 
After completing grad school, John went to work at Starline and hasn't looked back. Yeah, it's been good, right? So I'm not bored yet, so that's important. Uh, and I was just, you know, my story here is, you know, being an engineer and trying to make process improvements, a lot of that revolves around our software and interactions with users and software and customers of software. And, you know, so the internet came along in the early 2000s, kind of trans transformed some things as well. But quickly learned that in order to make any of these process improvements, I had to deal with our software development team or our IT folks. And I had to learn how to speak their language. So went back and did some, you know, trained myself in some minor uh, computer programming, uh, a lot of database design, a lot of database querying, kind of picked up a lot of the tech stuff just so I could communicate with our tech folks here. And then ultimately it was my day-to-day -day interactions with them kind of took over that side of the business, uh, focusing a lot on, you know, mixing process and system improvements with technology and software here at Starline. A major undertaking John was tasked with was to create a new ERP system for Starline. That's the system that helps a company automate the flow of data to the various departments internally, from accounting to human resources to art, purchasing and shipping. It's a hugely complicated, expensive and time-consuming job that touches every nook and cranny of a company. If I was going to do it again, I probably wouldn't, but it's provided us, I would say, a competitive advantage where I can change anything on the fly overnight, right? We're, you know, we'll make a change, deploy it tomorrow and, you know, have a whole new set of features for customer service, graphics, art, you know, whatever you name it, sales needs a, you know, a new functionality to interact with customers, we can deploy that tomorrow. So I get a level of flexibility on the pros that comes with the downside of I have probably a little too much flexibility. So you just got to kind of buckle up sometimes and go with the changes. So it's not for everything. I think our organization has adopted to it. Um, they've liked the fact that we can change anything. And you just have to have that mindset that you come in tomorrow and the entire UI could be changed. As an industry, we face a variety of challenges that limit how far we can grow and how fast. Technology is the crux of many of these, and there are three big threats that John sees. We have a attracting talent problem, I think, as an industry. Uh, I was on a promo kitchen board call yesterday where I think Jerry Gibson was kind of like, no one knows what we are or what we do as an industry. So it's, it's always tough to explain when we, you know, we'll go out and actively recruit developers, recruit IT folks, and we have to sell them both on our organization, but that this is a viable market going forward. Because you know, they think about these things, you know, are, is this a industry where I'm going to be developing archaic tools or is it something where I can create cutting edge technologies and implement them? So our biggest, so we just came off of that, you know, the industry's largest technology conference where we have, a, you know, probably 50 to 60 developers along with another 100 right you know tech folks where we're trying to push some of those you know new trends you know how can we implement ai how can we you know how can we discuss things you know is this blockchain have a future in our industry what are some things that we can push the envelope that isn't the boring day-to-day -day transaction of business right because that doesn't get anybody excited so i mean from a technology standpoint talent's one big thing um i think you're seeing a lot of suppliers and distributors realize that they 
probably not long-term going to be able to attract that talent and pairing up with some of these large enterprise um, solutions, right? The NetSuite's all the rage right now. You're seeing a lot of M4, a lot of sightline implementations that are coming along because I think suppliers where they used to would have managed those solutions in the past are now outsourcing a lot of that and scaling, right? I mean, there's, we can't just have a guy at, at a large supplier who manages the network, who manages the infrastructure. I think lack of investment in the infrastructure has probably held back uh, technology in the industry for the last decade. Uh, unfortunately, in the early 2000s, all suppliers ran to India to offset a lot of things that should have been done via process improvement and personnel improvement and training and just pawned it all off on India, China, every, you know, Philippines, because that was a more viable, quick solution when they couldn't, they didn't have the resources or foresight to make those improvements via technology. And admittedly, we did the same thing, right? I mean, that run to offshoring everything set the industry back a decade in technology. And now we're playing catch up. And why is it imperative companies invest in technology? Because what gets the investment in the industry, right? Sales and marketing, right? A lot of the flashy things that you see up front, right? So would a small supplier rather spend, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars on a booth that's going to be used in Expo for two days out of the year or invest a few hundred thousand dollars in technology? And, you know, I'll go... I'll have that conversation with anybody of which could have the greater ROI if invested properly. The earliest forms of artificial intelligence, or AI, began in the mid-1900s with the British computer pioneer Alan Turing, who helped decode enemy messages during World War II. At its most basic levels, AI is the ability of a computer to perform tasks normally performed by humans. And that's why so many people worry AI is going to snatch their jobs away. How does John see AI snaking its way into promotional products? You know, in the immediate GPT, you know, it's going to handle all the copywriting. Uh, you're seeing a lot of AI around graphic design. I think that's the next frontier for AI replacement in our industry. Um, there is obviously the code writing. Uh, I think there's, I'm not sure how much in our industry that will affect us. We'll probably see the trickle-down effect from other larger providers, but you know, just using artificial intelligence to write software to you know to do scripting will be important. But I think the quickest thing is going to be content generation. So call it you know product descriptions, um, blogs, any sort of you know case studies, write-ups, all that stuff. There's going to be a big you know a lot of pressure on graphic design from AI. You're seeing, you're seeing the fringes of it now, but I think you're just waiting for both the companies to adapt and the technology to kind of creep into our space. So, you know, call it from flyer design to product images to, you know, cleaning up shot. All that stuff is like primed for AI to, to do some damage there. And then I guess where does it stop from there, right? I guess doing mundane clerical work probably is going to be right for the taking. But what about AI and customer service, an area many already see as a space where this technology can be used effectively? I think 
if your customer service experience today is outsourced to seven countries across the world, like, yes, AI is going to take that over, right? AI is going to replace that. Uh, here's a script I read from. If this question comes in, I answer it this way. I look it up in the system. Like, AI is going to take that over. But the differentiator is who's providing solutions that actually require intelligent human thought, right? There's, you know, we've separated here the, you know, the order entry functionality from customer service functionality because I believe and will believe probably for the next decade that we add value from having intelligent customer service reps who can are sitting in my production facility who can go out and collaborate with my production and scheduling managers, my shipping department, and create added value that isn't, you know, reading what we would just say, reading the catalog to somebody, right? That stuff's going away, right? Um, verifying, do you have inventory of this? Like promo standards, which we'll get to in a second, so it's taking care of all of that. You know, is my pricing correct? There's solutions for that, but ultimately, us humans that are, you know, competing with AI, and we add value with creative think and creative thought. So, you know, I, there will be obviously some ramifications of job redistribution, but I'm hoping, and our goal here is to redistribute those to better solutions and services that we provide and not just replacing humans. John is also heavily involved with promo standards. This mixture of industry distributors, suppliers, and service providers, launched in 2014, standardizes the transfer of data to move transactions forward. So what the heck does that mean in English? So promo standards is a nonprofit uh, founded by 10 companies in the industry, a collection of suppliers, distributors, and service providers. And what we effectively do is we're a member organization that has built out a whole system of committees, volunteers, board members, uh, service providers, and we draft data transfer standards for the industry. So we are saying, you know, if you're going to communicate inventory from supplier to distributor, supplier to service provider, use this standard and this protocol and if we all use the same standard and protocol, we cut down on the implementation and integration costs because the same communication I do with ASI is the same one I do with Halo, is the same one I do with Common SKU, is the same one I do with an e-commerce company in Tennessee that people might not have heard of. So we transact that across inventory, order status, shipping details, all of your product data, pricing, configurable pricing, which is the most important thing, is Anybody can transmit a price and a product, but what we do as an industry is unique because I have a piece of drinkware I can decorate four ways, 18 locations, but what are the associated charges? So promise, the unique part of this is we collected the, I guess, at the time, the brightest people that we could find and who understand the promo industry, who understand how suppliers and distributors and service providers interact. And not just how you know, and we develop these standards that work for the industry, that were designed for the industry. And what does John see as the biggest immediate threat faced by our industry? Short-term security. This industry sucks at security. Uh, I mean, look at every other month. There's a massive breach that you know PPB or ASI, somebody's picking up, or you know, ASI Central is running with. And they suck, and they affect people's jobs. 
they put companies out of business. So, I mean, that was a big thing. Even at a data and integration uh, conference, we had a heavy focus on security because we knew we had industry technologists in the same room. And what we needed to have that focus on tech. You know, we had Mike Pfeiffer, the ASB CIO, our vice president of tech. And, you know, he, he gives a great presentation on cybersecurity. So we have to shore that up in the short term. Given the transparency of the supply chain, does John see the business model our industry embraces being broken in the near future? I'm not sure how much longer you're starting to see post-pandemic gray areas of the traditional supply chain model emerge, right? There's the, while I'm a very staunch believer in the supplier distributor B2B model, spokes of gray in the middle are starting to emerge where that's breaking down. And I'm not sure that that, that has to break down, but something's got to give there as the end consumer has more ability and resources to reach the ultimate manufacturer or producer of goods, we need to ensure there's a proper sales model across the supply chain that is, I guess, not going to be ripe for taking. But we have to embrace these outside forces of, you know, what, five years ago, everybody was talking about Amazon, right? Amazon doesn't what we do is so complicated and stupid. I mean, Starline produces 100,000 orders a year. Every single one of them is custom. Every single one's different, logoed. It's a big, giant pain in the ass what we do. So that's not the threat. I think the threat is somebody within disrupting and creating a business model that starts to pull off more and more of the pie um, in a, you know, I guess a more tech-savvy, end-user-reaching mechanism. Despite all that's happening, he feels good about where we're headed as an industry. I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic for this year. I talked to a lot of people, and there was a lot of wait and see for 2023. And we tend to, we have this, you know, by 315 of every year, we can pretty much give you, a, aside from natural disaster, give you a pretty good feel for what our year is going to be like uh, historically. And, you know, I don't think the world and the promo world and ad spec world is going to crash and burn in 2023. So, you know, we're very optimistic about the industry's future this year. So uh, I think there was a, you know, there's some soft spots in January across the industry. Um, but I like to tell our salespeople, there's 23 shipping days in March. So there's no way you can suck in March because you have so many more days to ship stuff where you only had 19 days to ship stuff in February. So you get four free days this month to make your numbers. How hard can that be? John believes companies need to develop creative solutions to tackle the challenges they face, making them less likely to fall prey to technology, which may take away jobs and careers. At the end of the day, technology remains a double-edged sword with the ability to make our world a better place or turn it into chaos, depending on who's behind it. From all of us here at Promo Corner, thanks for listening to the new profiles. I'm Steve Woodburn, and we'll be back next month with stories of other disruptors and agents of change in the promotional products world. Stay tuned. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Profiles. Tune in next month for another story of someone who wasn't afraid to dream big, take chances, or shake things up. <laughs>